0: Here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to a fine time for healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Imagine if your father took you at 3 years old, kidnapped you, and then told you your mother was dead. Then, once taken to another part of the country, your father basically abandoned you and leaves you to be raised in several different foster homes and orphanages. This is what happened to today's special guest, Ed Hagem, well before Google, social media, and all the ways we now track down folks. Ed was left in poverty, abandoned, and feeling incredibly lonely. Now, when let's move forward to 60 years old. When Ed was 60 years old, with the help of an old suitcase, he found letters indicating that his mother was very much alive. And he was angry with his then-late father for being so selfish in taking him from his own mother. Learning his mother was alive, who he hadn't seen since he was 3 years old, 57 years later... Everything Ed knew went upside down, and his sense of trust questioned. He had to think, does he reach out to his mother? Would she want him, or would she reject him? Ed explains his incredible story of resilience, discipline, and using his inner voice to navigate his life, which is true to true rags to riches American story, in his just-released in- and riveting memoir On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from Orphanage to the Boardroom. What's amazing is despite his difficult years, Ed learned to survive, not only that, to keep himself strong and focused, and step by step he turned his life around, eventually living the American dream with the help of a NROT college scholarship. He got himself through the University of Rochester and then attended Harvard Business School. Then he became a Wall Street executive, a business tycoon of the highest order. In 2008, after 20 years as a trustee of the University of Rochester, Ed became chairman of its board and gave the school $30 million to support scholarships and endow the Edmund A. Hayden School of Engineering and Sciences. This was the largest single donation in the history of their school. So let's meet this incredible man. Good morning, Ed, and welcome.
1: Good morning, Randy. You're overdoing it a bit. It scares me when you talk like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why does it scare you? Is, are you
1: sure that's me? I mean, I keep questioning I'm questioning the whole story. <laughs>
0: I know. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, because I have my story is nothing like yours, but I have a crazy story. And when I think back to that period of time in my life, it doesn't even seem like the same person because we change so much through the years and so many different things happen. But, yes, it is you because you wrote the book.
1: <laughs> unless- What's what, what wonderful, the, the, the added extra I get out of this book is that so many people relate their life to my life, not all of it. But like you say, part of it, you can relate. And I could, act, I could write another book about the conversations I've had with people about their lives, which has been uh-huh. a very, very satisfying thing for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I always say that we could each write a book because our lives are stories and they there's twists and turns and... And good times and bad times, and, you know, it's just, it's amazing. But life is a story. But yours is particularly interesting, I have to say. Um, so I said a little bit about, you know, what happened when you were three years old. But is there anything you wanted to share about that part?
1: Well, it it, it, it you have to go back a little bit into my father's life. And what's wonderful about this book, and my first ghostwriter wanted me to hate my father, and I, had to, I said I, I just did, couldn't do that, so I had to get another ghostwriter because she wanted the drama of that. And what we have to go back and understand a human being's life. Father was born in 1900 and came to the United States uh, as a baby, uh, either born on the boat or born in, in Syria before they left in the port. And for the next 18 years, he grew up in, in high schools in New York City and got fascinated with the new technology called radio and went to work for RCA and made an enormous amount of money uh, at that point in time until 1929. He actually owned real estate on 110th Street, New York. They owned houses. He had a real estate, he had a stock portfolio, and he even had a picture of him with his own airplane. And between 29 and 33, he lost everything. I mean, literally everything, uh, including he lost his mother, who was, he was very close to. His father he was not that close to. But his mother was really a matriarch of their community, and she died And according to him, she died of a broken heart because the community she lived with lost so much during the crash of 29. And as he said to me, he said, in 1933, I had a choice between committing suicide and driving to California. Thank God for me that he drove to California. But (laughs) on the way to California, he stopped at a cousin's house, somewhat unwelcomed. At that point in time, people didn't need people visiting. And the the cousin had six children, the fifth of which was an 18-year-old young lady and shockingly to everybody in two weeks they got married and uh just he was 33 so he was she was 15 years younger they proceeded to california and like most people i just finished a book reading about this the streets in california were not paved with gold dad had a lot of trouble in fact when i was born three years later on my birth certificate it said i was born to an unemployed father and a homemaker mother and Dad was a difficult person, but difficult because he had gone through this horrible crisis and also because of his background. You know, in his day, if you read Leon Uris' book uh, about Ibrahim, you know, he ruled the roost. He wouldn't let my mother work. He She was basically a servant. And after three more years, she, at age 24, she'd had enough, and she decided to divorce him, which was shocking in 1939. And she did divorce I and mean, and he got visiting rights and $5 a month of uh, alimony and child support. And she moved me from Los Angeles, where we were living, to St. Louis, which was her original home. When she arrived back in St. Louis, she was truly not welcomed. I mean, in those days, you didn't need extra couple of mouths to feed, and people didn't were not excited about someone being divorced at age 24. So, when my father came to visit me on the first visiting day, he found me somewhat unkept, as he said, and instead of taking me to a movie or to the playground, he basically got on Highway 66 and he told me back to Los Angeles, and yes, and a few days or weeks later, he told me my mother died. I didn't, at three years old, realize, I guess, what he was saying, but we went on, and we were we were buddies for the next two years, although he spent most of that time as a Merchant Marine at sea, and I spent time with a Mrs. Benson, who was a neighbor. And then when the war war started, he was drafted or he volunteered into the Merchant Marines, and I ended up in five foster, foster homes, uh, so it was a, it was quite a you know quite a, a trip for me because the foster home foster system in that those years weren't that good the first foster home was uh, abusive and cold and they got a little better as time went on and the last one actually was a very fine foster home for, you know with a family that really wanted me and actually taught me what a family was all about so that was a real trip or or as I call it njira a real movement uh, in lifetime and, and uh, it taught me an awful lot I mean I. I, I argue with people that although life was not di- was difficult for me, I had a lot of disadvantages that became advantages. I mean, <laughs> think about the idea of transferring from one school to the other between ages of 5 and 10. You learn adaptability. You learn what it is, what the rites of passage are in each new environment that you enter. And uh, I think that's really what I want to share. Uh, Dad, as I look back on it, and the book helped me understand this, did what he could. I mean, you could argue he could have done more, but he did what he could. He had basically had one profession, which was being a merchant marine radio operator, and that required him to be at sea, you know, 75, 80% of the time. So he was not there. And after the war, uh, he returned to the East Coast. I flew across country, a five-stopper on a DC-10, and uh, we spent the a, a summer of 46 in the the YMCA on Thirty Fourth Street together, and he was looking for work. I spent most of the time by myself. I learned New York City at age ten, and at age eleven we went to Coney Island, lived in a, in a, a room and a half in a Coney Island hotel, and I went to school there. Dad continued to look for land-based work, couldn't find it, and ended up going back to sea. And in fact, as a part of the summer of forty-seven, you'll see in the book that I actually spent I spent all alone at age eleven, and uh, you know it, it taught me obviously self-reliance and a little bit of self-confidence. And then I was supposed to live with a neighbor while he was at sea, and it turns out the neighbor decided she didn't want to take me, and I ended up in two orphanages between ages 11 and 18. And so that was the early part of my life, and it's, it's, uh, it, it was a story that I, I almost hardly don't believe it now. It took me a very long time to write the book. Uh, I had a great deal of difficulty writing. In fact, my daughter had to step in and write my early life story for the, in the first draft but. Because I really couldn't handle it. It was very difficult really? to bring back those memories. Because at yeah. 18, I went to college and I decided I would bury it. And psychologists would go crazy saying, you can't bury it. I buried it. Someone's okay. mother told me that a little bit of deli- denial never never hurts. But I buried it. And I buried it for almost 55 years. And uh, when I became chairman of the board at the University well, of Rochester. Let me,
0: let's, let, me, let me ask you some excuse questions. Me. I'm
1: sorry. So. I, I wandered <clears> on.
0: Yeah, I mean, the story can go on and on and on. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, so you buried um, a lot of your past, and uh, as somebody who works with people who have had traumatic childhoods, um, this is something I see a lot, and when you've been used to stuffing all that down, hiding it, hiding it behind a wall or whatever, at some point, It has to come out. Was there a time in which that started to seep through and you began to feel your past?
1: Well, you know, it was a successful burial. That's why, and you're right, I've read all the books about what I shouldn't have done, but I did it. I decided that I truly didn't want to deal with my background. I I was ashamed of it. I was embarrassed. I didn't want anything special given to me because I had this background. I didn't want pity. I, I remember... When I I was 13, the the girls in my class gave me a watch, and it really destroyed me. I didn't want to be treated differently. So when I got to college, and I I, I communicate this to young people now, you do have a choice, and most kids now let it hang out. But I I really decided, and there was one other student, in my high school, and I went to him and I said, I'd appreciate it if you don't tell anybody where I came from. So I basically, my mother died when I was three. My father's a merchant marine. We live in a post office box in San Francisco. And that's the end of the story. And it it worked out pretty well for my college career, and it started to be successful. And, you know, I didn't have to tell anybody. Uh, But when I was 55, uh, 55 years later, I became a chairman of the board of trustees at the University of Rochester. Simultaneously, my daughter and my two sons, as well as my wife, were pressuring me to put this down on paper because they felt the next generations, we had had eight grandchildren at the time, and they said they'll have to know what their grandfather was like. So I started to write the book, and, and unfortunately, at the University of Rochester, the, the head of development started to dig into my background, along with the dean of the business school. They started to come up with some facts by Googling things and so forth. And then when I started to write it, I started to realize that there was a story that I could tell and I could deal with it. But even at that point in time, being 72 years old, I had trouble dealing with it because I buried it so deeply. And I had right. to separate the facts, facts with what I remembered. So, But so it, I did get away with it. And you know, if I, I read all the books, all the psychological books, and said, "Boy, you shouldn't have done that," but I did. Ha- I did carry some things. I carried anger with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was and probably yeah. what you're talking. About. Yeah, well, well
0: that is right one of the. I, that, that's one of the byproducts of you know exactly of right. of not dealing with your past. Yeah, I mean, something is going
1: to come out, something. But I guess no, your so, anger. You're, 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 I'm sorry. You're, you're you're right, Randy. I did carry anger, but I was again lucky there, or. Or, or sort of thought it through. My anger was directed at me, you know. And I, I found my father's anger was directed externally. He was always angry at somebody. And I luckily, or decided that I was going to drive my anger was going to drive at me. I'd get mad on the golf course, mad at the tennis court, mad at myself for making mistakes on exams and so forth. But rarely ever mad at anyone else. And and that actually helped my drive drive me to do better than I probably should have done too as well. So I was very lucky in those two aspects, yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, because I would think that if you are constantly beating yourself up, you know, it's hard to get anywhere. But that's not your story. I mean, the more you beat yourself up, I guess, the more you were motivated. And that is not what happens with the average person. The more they are angry at their situation and their past, um, the more it uh, stagnates them, hinders their growth. So you the had the A little situation. trick I
1: used. little trick I used. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tried never to become a victim. It's very hard. Obviously, sometimes I thought that I was a victim. But I tried not to be a victim and always tried to look what's next. And that came from the early childhood. When you start changing places, I was in 15 or 20 different locations before I was 18 years old. And you always had to adjust to the new environment. So I, I, I tried not to make myself a victim. And I, I found also my father was a victim. He always was a victim. Somebody else was doing something wrong to him. And I always thought that that, that energy used, you use energy to become a victim. Instead of using his energy for that, use it to look forward and ask what's next. What can I do to improve my position? And so that was the, that was another little experience that I got through that sort of combined with bearing my background that helped me out. Mm, well, wow. 100%. You can't get, right. you're indicating, you'll get away with it.
0: Mm. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So you, you know, you talk about loving your father. You said that you, you know, the first ghostwriter, you know, wanted you to hate your father, but you love your father. And I want you to share with us how you're able to truly do that with somebody who kidnapped you and abandoned you and those kind of things. Um, How do you, how do you love your father? How do you find that love in your heart?
1: Well, originally, you know, as a, ba- as a small child, he gave me unconditional love, although it was mostly by letters. It was, he gave me unconditional love. I would never, he never agreed with the fact that I was ever a bad boy. He, that's the message he sent me. You're the best, you're the greatest, you're going to do well. He sent me those messages. So there was the early love. And when we spent time together, he would always hug me and talk to me. And, of course, remember when he kidnapped me. And kidnapping sounds terrible. But what he was doing at that point now, he was feeling and not thinking. He, had, he couldn't do without me. So that was really a great deal of love. My mother, on the other hand, and I found this out later on, she was much more of a practical person. and She was thinking and not feeling. In fact, I, I, later on discussing that with her, she felt that she arrived home and she, I was not welcome at the home. So she thought maybe I was going to be better off with my father. That's why she didn't pursue me. Sure, could probably couldn't pursue me because she didn't have the resources. But anyway, so and then you know, we were estranged when when, when when he died because later on he disagreed with everything that I did. I mean, when I left the navy, he did, he's unhappy. He can't leave the navy because when he left the navy, things went downhill. I when I had, I was an engineer, I was doing well. He said you can't leave engineering. I went to Harvard Business School with not enough money to get even get through the first year. So how are you going to do that? What are you doing that for? You had a great job as an engineer. And he really, you know, disagreed. And then when I married my wife, he disagreed with, with marrying her as well because, well I didn't know it because I never saw a picture of my mother, she looked a little like my mother. And, and she also came their parents came from the same part of the world, Eastern Europe. And he was against Eastern European people as if he wanted me to marry somebody from the Middle East, you know. So, so he disagreed with all that. So we died. We, yeah, we have a peaceful coexistence when we died. And so I had the early love. And as I wrote this book, I started to realize what he went through in his lifetime. And having been a businessman, I've seen other businessmen really have difficult times and how it affects them. When you lose everything, it it, it creates demons that are very hard to get over. So I understood more and more about his reaction. So I came to the conclusion that he did what he could do. He lived in a very difficult time. Anybody born in 1900... You know, had very few, few very good years. I mean, the Spanish flu, the First World War, a few good years in the twenties, then the Depression, then the Second World War. The after-war period was not terribly good. And the seventies weren't good. So it was a really tough period. And I preach this to people: pay attention to your context. You know, what period of history are you living in, and what are the good parts and what are the bad parts of it? So, so, so I, and there, I also find if you don't love your parents, even no matter how awful they are what seems like a bad situation i don't think it helps you because i think that most parents and there are some that violate that rule but most parents try your life is not simple i mean you're in the 20s and 30s and 40s things were very different they were very different i mean i just finished another book on the dust bowl and what people did in, you know leaving texas and going to california and finding out it's worse than texas you know it's a, it was a difficult period of time, so I loved him now more than I did when he died. And I had a lot of trouble when he died because I think in the book I tell you about the fact that I, I thought we were estranged, and he died suddenly, he had a heart attack, and died on, on the road in his car. And so I went to a psychologist, for the first time in my life I got help, and she was wonderful, a woman at the Ackerman Institute, a woman named Peter, uh, Peggy Penn. And she had me, for over a six-month period, write letters to my father and ask questions, and then sit down and write answers. Hmm. And by doing that, again, I came to understand him better and love him for that. Right. Wow.
0: Well, sorry. Wow. So that's okay. That's okay. It was a good answer. So tell us about, um, <clears throat> what it was like to contact your mother and, um, how that progressed.
1: I feed in one other real helpful event. My wife, uh, uh, my wife had her master's degree in counseling and in the book it says <laughs> that I was her best and only client so that was that helped a lot and she <laughs> she, she had a master's degree in, in counseling had done a lot of counseling work so so okay. she's been a real copy and, and a very important element all the way through and that's that expressed in the book as far as meeting my mother's concerned is it it's just shocking my wife was going to throw away a suitcase when I was 60 years old it was a rainy weekend in Greenwich and I decided to go through it and I found this package of yellow letters I mean, she wasn't dying. She didn't die. So I, it took about oh, three or four months to find her. But when they found her, she was 81 years old and, you know, had just lost her, her second husband. And, uh, you know, we, we, it took, it took almost, uh, over almost two months for us to decide we wanted to, to contact her because here we were, a happy family, you know, three children, eight grandchildren. I uh, had a good job and everything was going along just fine. So did I want to bring in somebody who my father said, you know, hated children, was not a good person? I had this horrible impression of her. But after a long conversation, we have, we have to do it. And I wrote her a letter, and that's in the book, you know, Dear Mrs. Hoffman, that was her name, I think I'm your son. <laughs> and did you please call on Sunday night in two weeks if you think that we should get together? She did. And uh, we went out to see her, and I remember hesitating for a moment before I pushed the bell in her apartment. I was saying, I'm your son, 57 years late. And when we met, there was no emo- immediate emotion. Because, again, a very practical woman. But immediately, I knew that she was my mother. First of all, she talked rapidly. And very few people in St. Louis talk as rapidly as she did. And she had a little bent over, which I'm a little bit bent over. I kind of walk my wife, drive my wife crazy. And and there was a certain sort of communication right away. Now, three or four hours into our first meeting, we did get quite emotional. And there were some really humorous moments when she turned to her, her son. She had a second son with a second husband. She said, remember that brother you always wanted? Well, now here he is. <laughs> she never told him about me at all. So. Oh, my so gosh. It was, but it was quite a good experience, and we spent 12 years together. And, uh, you know, she always repeated many times, I'm really not your mother because I didn't take care of you. But she made me call her every Sunday. And if I didn't call her on Sunday, if I missed the Sunday, she would say, long time between drinks of water. And she was very, <laughs> you know, she, had, she could produce, produce the guilt pretty well. But she oh was a wonderful gosh. lady. She was great humorous. In fact, we found out there was one thing. We both rhymed. You know, when I go to a, somebody's party, I'll always do a little poem. And she did a <laughs> poem, and she did better, better than I did. On her, on her 85th birthday, she had a long poem, and she memorized it. until so I started to realize there were other similarities. It would have been a wonderful psychological study for, for a graduate school. But, I, I again, <laughs> I didn't want a private thing. I didn't tell anybody. I told very few people about finding her. You know, I kept, I've been very private. The fact is all this stuff, including talking to you, has always made me very nervous because I've lived, in, lived my life under the mantra that to live happy is to live hidden. You know, and publicity to me is oh, always wow. something I avoided. And so now this is a new experience for me, and I'm actually sort of enjoying it, but it's difficult because it's a little bit scary. You know, you're, you're, you're well, saying things you're to Well, you're right. People you know.
0: You're right. I mean, I know, you know, when you release a book, it is a very vulnerable feeling. Um, because I've done it a few times, and each time it's like it's you can't wait till it's published. And then when it's out, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm exposed. Everything is out there, and so I get it. I really do. It takes some courage. Ready, you're
1: right. You're right. Do. On you, you, you capture the emotion perfectly. I was, it's like giving birth. And when I finally gave birth to the damn thing, and it took me seven years, I relaxed and almost said, oh my god. <laughs> you know. And I, what I, did I, I, I do?
0: What did I do right? <laughs> what did I do? What did I do? Did I do right? Oh my gosh! <clears throat> um, okay, so uh, you did really well in your life. Did you? How did you? You started off as an engineer, or you started off with uh, with another kind of um, direction?
1: No, I, I I was in the navy. I had to spend three years in the navy. I got an NRTC scholarship, which changed my life. I mean, I still remember the the the, the scholarship when it came through because. It was a long letter from the government saying, you've not been selected as a, a scholarship student. Then there were four paragraphs. Then it says, you've been selected as an alternate. because you're. So I just barely made it in. And it, it, it paid my way through school. Not all the way. I had to work all the way through school. But it, it, it's what I had to spend three years in the Navy. And I spent three years on a ship in the Far East, made seven crossings to the Pacific. It was a great experience. I argue hard now that everybody should spend time like that. Three years. It just taught me so much. I mean, just to go flip, flip back a little bit there, I'm 22 years old. I report aboard the ship in Okinawa, Japan, and I'm introduced to 180 men who report to me age <laughs> 18 to 55. I mean, I had men that reported me who were older than my father. So, you know, it was a great experience, and I had wonderful three years. I almost stayed in the service. Anyway, I decided that I shouldn't stay in the service, and I decided to pursue my engineering. I was a chemical engineer, which was... A, a very difficult degree to get in those days. We flunked out 75% of the kids that started as engineers at Rochester. And, uh, so I went into the chemical business and actually I went in before Dustin Hoffman. Uh, I went, in, I, I was a plastics engineer about a few years before the, the graduate. And I spent a year in, in that doing, I had a great time as an engineer, but I found out that I really wanted to study business. I was studying business at night at Wharton business school. And, uh, I was told by the professor that I'm wasting my time going night to night school. And so I applied to Harvard Business School. A friend of mine convinced me I should go. I don't know how I got in because my college grades were not great. One of my commanding officers wrote a letter that said I basically walked on water in the Navy. So I did get into the Harvard Business School. And uh, then I wanted to go back into the chemicals because that's what really excited me. I thought that was the, the, you know, the science of the future. But I got fascinated by – and it's it a long story. I ended up in, in the financial area. I don't know if you got time for it, but uh, if you got time, yeah. it's, it's, it's a story. I'm all, all ready to go back either to Wall Street or to or to or, or into the chemical business, and I get a phone call from a friend of mine who is a, a class behind me at Rochester. And he says, "Will you be the best man in my wedding?" And I say, "Fine, okay." I hang the phone up. I got no money. I said, "I can't fly out to San Francisco." So that, that's where he's getting divorced. So I run over to the placement office and. I said, you got anything in California? And I knew the young lady there. And she said, yeah, but they're full up. There's only one company. It's called Capital Research. Come here at 4 o'clock. I'll see if I can get the chairman to see you. Anyway, he sees me. I go to the dinner. I win a ticket to California. And seven years before, I'd gone to this young man's house to transfer some information on a humor magazine, which I started. I was the founding editor, and he was the next editor. And his 13-year-old sister was buzzing around, a 14-year-old sister was buzzing around us and, you know, and so on. And I didn't pay attention to her, this pigtail little thing and so forth. When I left, she told her parents that she was going to marry me. And uh, when I was going to California to see the best man at his wedding, her mother called and said, would I take little Barbara to California? And uh, little Barbara turned to be 20 years old then. And uh, we, we tried to meet each other at Idlewild Airport, which is now Kennedy. And we passed a couple of three times. Finally, I passed the word for her. And we finally met. And we went out to the wedding and we danced. We had a good time. It was fine. But she was so young. And I went back to Harvard. Actually, I called her up and said, would you like to come up for a weekend? She said she would. And I said, okay, I'll fix you up with someone your own age. And I did. So anyway, uh, the company that I visited out there, which I had no interest in whatsoever, because I was only going out there to get the ticket to go to California, turned out to be a fascinating company. And I ended up going to work for them for 10 years. And when I changed my direction from the East Coast to the West Coast, she quit her job as a teacher and went in, got into graduate school in San Francisco. Essentially followed me out there. And we started dating and we were married. And uh, uh, so I stayed with this company. It was a wonderful company. I spent 10 years with them. And uh, at the end of 10 years, uh, you'll see in the book that I, I, I started to get uh, full of myself. I thought I was a super stock picker. And I spun myself up off into my own company, which then failed, and ended up on Wall Street at the button, And, uh, and then E.F. the Lehman Brothers, the firm and it. I don't know how much you want to discuss that, but I had a wonderful career in, on Wall Street. I had, I, had, really had I, I did some very good work. But it all came from my ability to manage people. It, that came back, flashback to the humor Magazine. I started the humor Magazine my junior year at college. And I had to put 30 people together. Everybody was against it. The president was against it. The provost was against it. The librarian was against it. You know, this is going to be a disaster. And I put these 30 people together, and I started to realize what really excited me was putting people together to create a, a new product or a project or a program. And I really got a kick out of helping people do better than they could and also putting people together to create something. You have to have partners. You have to have partners that do things you can't do. You have to get, get partners that can do things better than you can do. Putting this whole thing together really changed my life. And also, I we had to fund the thing, you know, I had to find the money for it. So I went out and I sold advertising in a magazine that didn't exist. And I told people, if in your light, early lifetime, if you could sell something to people you've never <laughs> met before, it doesn't exist, you're going to do okay in life. And I did that. But that really transferred into my Wall Street experience because Wall Street's a tough place. But people got the, the impression that I really wanted to help them succeed. I wanted them to do better than they thought they could. And by doing that, what happened to me was I ended up doing better than I thought I could as well. And mm-hmm. so I, I had people who surrounded me, and people call me up today, Ed, you're you one of the great, one, one woman just wrote me the other day, you're the greatest boss I ever had. And I did mm-hmm. that constantly because I really was never a boss. I was a partner, coach. I was a helper. You know? and, and by the way, I walked a walk. Because when I became the CEO of my, the final firm, I got a job at Firm and Sales. For 20 years, I was the chairman and CEO of the firm. And over the 20-year period, I paid myself the most money once in those 20 years. So I not only talk the talk, but I walked the walk. I paid people who did better than I did in any one year, more money than I made. And I promoted people, too. So that, 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 And that's why I ask people to, to really focus on their passions. My passions early were math and science, but they, they kept morphing, they kept changing, and finally ended up in finance, and then finally management, and because I found those where I got my kicks. I still love that. I love working with people to produce something, you know, finding the right people to put together, you know, and make the things work. And that's all. Randy, I'm sorry. My, my, my daughter is a, a TED Talk, a TED Talk uh, curator, and she said, Dad, stop making the answers so long.
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Very well, I'm just... A- uh, it's okay. I'm sitting back and listening. And you know what? If I wanted to interrupt you, I would. <laughs> so,
1: so she, she and I had we had a session in studio, and she interrupted me because she kept. Saying, but please interrupt. I'm, I'm, I'm easy. Yes, I'm not, I, not, I, not, I,
0: I absolutely will interrupt you if I feel like I want to. I've been doing this a very long time, so. Um,
1: I know. Yeah. I'm gonna yeah, say I saw your record too. Very impressive.
0: <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. I've done this show for over 10 years and I've done over 500 shows. Um, so, yeah, I kind of know how to interview somebody. <laughs> yeah, by Keep now I should. <laughs> by now I should. So, you worked for Lehman Brothers. Were you there when they went down?
1: Oh, yeah. It's that, what's wonderful part of the book is that, you know, people ask me, you know, what's the worst thing that happened to you? And I said a lot of sad things happened to me, but one of the worst things that can happen to anybody is if you spend a significant period of time doing everything right, being successful, and still getting thrown out. I spent seven years at Lehman Brothers during the period when a fellow named Lou Glucksman and Pete Peterson were fighting. I was one of the senior partners there, member of the board of directors. I was the younger, youngest member of the board of directors in the 100-year the history of Lehman Brothers. I was the youngest, youngest director. And I took over a, security, a, a brokerage division they, you know buy and sell stocks which was a total disaster and in two and a half years i turned it around it made money it took its place in the industry report and then Glucksman pushed me out of that into the money management business which was was going straight down to two it they had three billion in assets and while i got there they went down to two billion people it was in disarray and i turned that around and in three less than three years we went from two billion to ten billion i named the first woman vice president who came a star for us, you know, it was a great experience, I was ready to I, ready to, I was ready to become the head of the firm, and then he comes to me, and he, he asked me to put, to basically support him, to push out Pete Peterson, who I loved, he was a super banker, and a super guy, and I said, I wouldn't do it, and he said, I need your vote, I only have nine votes on the board, I said, no, I'm not giving it to you, I said, I think that you two work well together, you're Mr. Inside, he's Mr. Outside, you know, let's keep it that way, anyway, so, a few weeks later, I got pushed out of that job and mm. into another job, which was the non-job, and I had to leave Lehman Brothers. I left Lehman Brothers in October of '83, and seven months later, they were sold to Shearson. He, he, he wrecked the firm again. But here, I had done everything right for seven years. It was painful. In fact, it was a sad story because during that period, my one of my sons was, went through his teenage years, and I spent a lot of time at Lehman Brothers struggled. It was hard. It was hard. He was very smart people, very difficult experience, and we did very well, but I got thrown out. So, but I was there <laughs> during that period. It was a crazy firm because they had so many smart people. I mean, they had contacts. We, you'd go to lunch, and the, 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 by the way, they had the finest lunchroom in, in, in the entire Wall Street community, overlooked the whole harbors on the 40th floor, and you'd have the King of Spain there for lunch or the Federal Reserve Chairman. Pete Peterson, who was the CEO and chairman, he had contacts. I mean, I, I worked with him on a couple of deals. He'd have, you know, senators and congressmen and Federal Reserve Chairman on hold while he was talking to somebody else. He just knew it and he was brilliant in terms of banking, you know. He really knew how to how to how to change companies. And he was a good manager as well. But he, he and Gutzman didn't go along, and Gluckman pushed him out and then uh, basically mm-hmm. took the firm down and it's so a wonderful book. there many yeah, books written about this, and I, yeah. I give my own flavor to it. Uh, it's uh, it, it, there's a couple of chapters on it. Yes,
0: yes, yes. <laughs> so no, what I'm I, getting? I, I
1: wasn't there. I wasn't there for the second time it went down. It went down again in 2008, and one of the partners who was the then CEO was a junior partner when I was there. And I was there the first time it went down, which was in wow. 1984.
0: Wow, interesting. Well, from what I know um, of people who have narcissistic personality disorder, and I'm not saying that this was the case, but people that have this personality disorder, they will take a, a company down. And I'm just wondering if you know if that's what you were dealing with. You may not know. Oh no, he was
1: he, <laughs> absolutely total power. You know, power and everything. To, he used to sit with the billy club and hitting his hands with it. I mean that. And he would, he would fire people on the spot and send them home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it was terrible. In the book, in the book there's, a, there's an example. He lost the money. He's a trader. He, was, he ran the trading part of the firm. Peterson ran the banking part of the firm. And I ran, I ran the money management part of the firm. And he would, he, would, he would fire people and send them home. You know, he fired yeah. one, one fellow one day. who had 11 children. And I said, then what are you doing? You know, and he called me one morning. He said, I want you to fire four people. We, we've lost the money in my division. I'm firing four people. I want you to fire four people. And so I, I, I arrived at his office. He says, where are the four people? I said, you're looking at them. If you want to fire somebody, you have to fire me. I, I can't afford to fire four people because our reputation is so bad already. If I fired four people, I'd never be able to hire anybody else. And I was building my big my business. So but he was, it's in the book. The, the book's written. Yeah. Ken Oletta wrote a book called The Greed and Glory on Wall Street, which is mm-hmm. a very fine book and lays it all out and I add some nuances to it. In addition, Steve Schwarzman tells about his book and also Peter Solomon. So some of my old partners have written books on that. It was a classic period because he was a firm that was so powerful, and it went to nothing in a year.
0: It's just, yes, it was shocking. It really was.
1: Again, not not being a victim, I mean, I could have been a victim. I said, my God, I did such a good job. What are you doing? I just looked forward, and then, I left them to find my dream job, which was to run a company myself. <laughs> I came to, to basically the chairman of Furman Sales and it was my company. I must say I traded a, a dining room, a, a fantastic dining room, for a, a conference room with two hot plates. I <laughs> traded an office for the entire, the entire Verrazano Bridge, uh, the whole works, the harbor, the, the rivers and everything. I traded that for, for an office that overlooked a wall. <laughs> 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 and I always tell the story that, I, I could ring a buzzer on my desk and get an iced tea from the, in the dining room. And in, at Furman Cells, I rang the buzzer, and it went off in my seat of my chair, and I got up and got my own iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> but it was my company. And, and, you know, lucky that I left Lehman Brothers and, and got to Furman Cells because really my career uh, running my own company was much more fun. I had a great time. It was a great experience. We built it from 70 people to 800 people over 14 years. And if I wouldn't have left Lehman Brothers, I would have been stuck there in this, you know, obviously, profitable, exciting place, but horrible you know, experience with difficult people and everybody's grinding everybody to death. I mean, it's, yeah. it's silly. So You know, I
0: what I find over and over and over throughout life is that when something seems, you know, when we lose a job or something seems like we're being kicked out for no reason, uh, and we don't understand why it's usually I, I, I call it the baby bird being pushed out of the nest because sometimes we won't leave on our own. And then the universe just kind of says, nope, there's something else for you. I'm kicking you out. Um, and it always ends up to work in our benefit. So uh,
1: I, I, um, I, I, I agree with that. It, it, it's, it's what I said. The, the bend in the road is not the end of the road. You know, yes. And, and you just- and you just—I I believe in what I call flow. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I after I messed up my own company in nineteen uh, when I was thirty-five years old, I I got a disease called hubris. Hubris is terminal. I thought I could do everything all at once. You know, it's in the book. And really, failure early, by the way, is a gift. And I failed early. I failed in my thirties,
0: and it was very—it mm-hmm. was a gift
1: because I learned so much. But it, what, what happens basically? Uh, is if is you just wait around and, and, and I failed this company and uh, you know, I'm I not doing that well, they would have taken me back into the parent company, but I went to a wedding and I met the CEO of, of EF Hutton and we got chatting and he said, you ought to come work for me. And sure enough, <laughs> I did that. And that's the next step. You no, know, it, it's, it's, a, you, you, again, skill is important, but luck is essential. That's in the book too. I've been very lucky and I have gratitude for that, but you've got to just, just move on. And what's next? What, what else is out there? You know, what, right. what else can you bring your talents to?
0: Right. There's always something else. There's always something exactly. else. Yes. Um, you know, I think really what um, got you through uh, and made you so um, – made people, you know, attracted to you and want to work with you is your humility. I mean, I don't think – maybe other than the very beginning that you really let your ego lead the way. Um, I think that you had the right, the right perspective standing that everybody brings something different to the table and to allow that. So well, that,
1: that's a great, that's absolutely true. You, you got that from the book. That's one of the things I wanted to convey. That culture is the most important thing and, and understanding people and having empathy that, that a winning team, you know, can almost accomplish anything. If you've got a motivated, winning a group of people that want to do something, and if they feel that you're, in, you're trying to help them, you know, you, you basically can do almost anything. I mean, right. And that, I proved that with the firm and sales. We were 70 people, and during the 14-year period that we grew from seven to eight, 70 to eight, about 75% of the firms, or 50 to 75% of the firms, either went on a business or merged, but they were like us. The industry was consolidating. But I really felt that, you know, I really was interested in people. I mean, I had a woman at Firm & Sells who every, about every morning, maybe maybe you miss a morning occasionally, she would come in and tell me what was going on with people in the firm. And I remember, you know, and it wasn't manipulative. One of the young men on our, 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 our stock exchange floor was giving his kidney to his brother. And I called him the morning of the operation before he left. I said that that is an unbelievable sacrifice, and you know you're really very special. And of course, you know that vibrated to the whole firm. And I just did it because it, I, I really felt that this was you know, this was a young man. This was not a, you know, somebody you who know, had the life ahead of him. And I always wow. had, we had we had we had you know marriages and divorces and babies and that was always celebrated in our firm, and it was important because people are, it's more than work. You know, when I list the importance of life, it's self, family, work, and then community, which is what I call giving back. Those are the four, four balls you've got to keep juggling. But you've got to get self right. and you get self right, then it's family. And then, of course, family, it's work. You know, work and family work together. They're, unfortunately, they, 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 you juggle those back and forth because you, you have to have both of them. That's right.
0: That's right, you do. So you, had, you have a lot of empathy and I'm wondering if and – and that worked for you in business. Did, did you find uh, – I know that you were very resilient. Did the empathy affect you in other areas where you were oversensitive to certain things?
1: I, I don't think I, – I, I was very – what was nice, what my empathy was that people had difficult backgrounds. And, you know, mm-hmm. given when I grew up, a lot of people had difficult backgrounds. You'd be surprised. Almost everybody's got a story. And when you can empathize with somebody whose mother and father got divorced or, or his father left, you know, and so forth, that brought a lot you, – you, you became closer to people. People felt mm-hmm. that you were human, and they felt right. also that you understood them. But, I, you know, I guess I was oversensitive to some extent in that I always felt that, you know, I, I never wanted to put myself forward. You know, when I, I, I had a, a mantra that basically deflect credit. Oh, and, my. And, 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 some people said to me, you know, Ed, that's a mistake. I said because you know, people, you know, people didn't recognize who I was, and that was okay with me. You know, I, I didn't need to be, I didn't have, need to be known. You know, I, I, and this is why this book scares me a little bit because I'm getting a little bit known here. But you know, the, the, certain things you pick up. Ronald Reagan said, you know, you a can, can, a person can do anything if he doesn't worry about who gets the credit. I, mm-hmm. I put that together with helping people doing better than they think they can, boy, and that really works. And then deflecting the credit when you when somebody is going to focus on giving you credit, think about who else deserves the credit. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was the, the chairman, of, when I was mm-hmm. the president of the alumni association for Harvard Business School, they were going to give me a day, you know, a, there's going to be a full meeting where they're going to celebrate my my ten years as as not only the president but my contribution. And what I did then was give produce a video for the Associate Dean of Internal Relations, Christine Fairchild. And I showed that video at my day. And, you know, because I want – she really did the – she did the work. She basically pulled me back onto the board when I, when I tried to get off, and she supported me on everything. And they were giving me credit for this whole experience. And, and after I finished that, a woman who's a well-known name from Texas came up and she said, Ed, that's the classiest thing I've ever seen. That, that comment to me was worth more than anything, a lot of things in my life, because this is a woman I really respected. And, it, and I didn't think about being a classy thing. I just said, you know, Christine deserves the credit. I don't deserve the credit. And I, just, mm-hmm. I did the same thing when I stepped down as the chairman of the University of Rochester. I, I gave everybody a, a piece, of, a piece of, a, of crystal with their name, on it. <laughs> their, their name on it, the University of Rochester, and then the two words, thanks, Ed. And I said, oh. this is a thank you you can't possibly destroy. I mean, most thank yous go up in the air. This one's going to sit on your desk for the rest of your life because you guys have done an unbelievable job. Now, the board was, was unbelievable. They, we raised a billion three at the University of Rochester, more money than they raised in the previous 155 years combined. And it was, you know, it was a Herculean task, changed the university, created an inflection point. By the way, here again, deflect the interest. The president did the work. I was the chairman mm-hmm. I rode side saddle, you know, on the other side of the car. He did the work. He and I gave him credit in the book as well. He was a mm-hmm. he had more miles on US Air than anybody in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Traveling around, seeing our but anyway.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the same way. Um mm-hmm. I just I you know, I never feel like I mean, I feel like I'm guided. You know, I have a different kind of perspective. I feel like I'm guided to do things, and, and that's how everything happens. Um, so, yeah, I don't take a whole lot of responsibility for things that I do because I feel like I'm guided to do them. Um, so, but I, lo- I love, you know, I just love your your perspective. Um, it, it's so No, but, so you, but you just said
1: something. You know, I, I feel guided, too. You look at this book. I well, here yes. My age, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still chairman of a small company in Boston, but I'm kind of a know part-time but you know many respects this is a whole new life for me and i'm guided i was guided to do this you know yes. i i finished university of rochester in 2016 and this book's now come out and it's given me a whole new life to work i'm this is sort of a fifth career for me and it's really yeah. kind of a it, 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 the flow just it flows to the next step here yeah my wife thinks she said you're happier than you've been in a long time i'm really having fun with this and i'm getting terrific satisfaction i mean." kids, I mean, I, I found it, and I, new avenues have opened up for me. There's a group called Wiley in Boston that basically handles kids from foster homes, which are in universities in Boston, MIT, uh-huh. Tufts, Boston College, mm-hmm. and these kids, talking to them, I really can become, you know, that really have, I can associate, I can, you know, I, I can oh, tell gosh. them my, I, I can tell them about my freshman year
0: of uh-huh. college, how
1: terrible it was, and how I overcame it. And it gives yeah. one, one guy what we you know, her, her name is Miracle, and <laughs> she, she said, "You you re inspired me. I'm ready to, to you know go forward again, because it's tough being a you know a foster child. You go to a, a college. Not today. It's a little easier because there are more of them. I was the only one. You know, nobody else came. Nobody else. It seemed like nobody else was poor <laughs> at college when I went there. And you know, it, now is a few few more. But you can talk to these kids then, and I'm getting great satisfaction out of coaching them. In fact, the woman who runs it says you're the poster child for this whole organization." <laughs> <laughs> so and, yes, guided, guided is a good word I always call mm-hmm. this flow guided is a better word I like that mm-hmm.
0: yeah but you know actually flow and guided I see them as different because guided is just something that's just coming from you know God or the universe or whatever we believe we just kind of believe that our life is guided flow to me is another thing because and I just actually wrote that word down because I think that if we ride the flow of life, we do so much better. It's when we resist that we have problems. And so, you know, when, when you follow the flow of life, when you see a door or a window opening, you just go for it, you know, and you sort of let this, let these things guide you through your life. So I think flow and, um, and, and, and guidance, are, are different, but they're both just as important.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah. It's an interesting distinction. Let's I, 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 I have to think about that. Yeah. But you're right. I so, mean, mm-hmm. le, leaving Capital Research and meeting a guy at a wedding, and the door opened up, and I went and turned out yeah. to be the place to go. Yeah.
0: Exactly. That, that's a, exactly. Exactly. But, but, so, but
1: the guided also, you know, I, I, that, that's why, by the way, instead of self-publishing this and giving this book to 100 a, a of my friends, is the reason I'm taking it because I feel I'm guided. There's a I, I have a message and and it, it can be helpful to people, and i am mm-hmm. being guided to do this. You know I yes. really feel like it's Scott Peck's book. His fourth characteristic is called grace, and the grace is, is love, and love is giving to others. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. grace means you know the, the greater being and so forth. So you no, know, right. I'm a big Scott Peck guy. That's why I wrote the book On the Road Less Travel. His book is The Road Less Travel.
0: And oh
1: wow. The fact that it sold 20 million copies didn't discourage me either. But.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you have, you know, you have just a great attitude. It's it's admirable, and I think that is okay. that's what I take from the whole thing. I mean, the story is incredible, but listening to you and talking to you and hearing, you know, your perspective on all of this. It's just that your attitude is great, you know, and you – because children, there are there are many children who go through what you go through and end up on the streets and end up on drugs and end up on alcohol and end up homeless and in, in gangs and things like that, but you didn't. You didn't.
1: didn't not, no, because I think that's a couple of little tricks, again, in not being a victim and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and wanting more, wanting more. I really wanted more and, you know – the movies, uh, the, the final my final foster home, the little little things along the way that sort of kept me on the straight and narrow. The, the, this this family called the Robs, they really treated me like I mean they showed me what real family was like. I, I collected that little picture of what family was really like. And then the the, the, the headmaster of, of the orphan the last final orphanage home, Ruben Kostov, his name was, he was very special and he kept saying there is a good life out there for you. You have to work at it. And and my father was he was you know he he believed in hard work you know and I and I, I believed in hard work and so you know I, I want to take I, I want to take young people and convince them that it's all, anything is possible and that education mm-hmm. is the solution. You work mm-hmm. hard at it. You have to find your passion. I mean you can't no, everybody can't be a nuclear physicist. I mean I was kidding. In fact I wanted to be a physicist. And I want I to be a physicist, so my sophomore year I took a physics, an advanced physics course. And I almost flunked. I flunked it. But I got to got out of it quickly and back into engineering physics. But I want them to reach. And when you reach for things, you'll find that either you can do it and it's interesting and you go for it, or you can't do it and you go someplace else. I right. am this absolute passion about young people never wasting a summer. Get out <laughs> there and do something. You know, be, be you a know, driver. Yeah. My an ice cream truck one summer. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the greatest experience ever, driving an nice truck.
0: Kids nowadays, um, so many of them, and I can't say all of them, but it's, it's just the general um, mindset of the millennial generation, is that they want to be YouTube stars. They want to be uh, TikTok stars. Um, and they just, they don't want to work hard. Do you think that you could have achieved what you achieved in this generation if you had grown up in this generation with everything that happened?
1: Have That's you ever thought month. about that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. See, what's so nice about these interviews is you, give, you just gave me something really totally new to think about. Mm-hmm. I, I've gone back and, and said that I, I don't know whether I would have been much more successful in my father's context. You're asking me a new question now.
0: Uh Would would, would I be
1: successful in this context? Mm -hmm. How would I? Well, the reason and the reason I
0: ask, the reason I ask is because it's nearly impossible to get into Harvard and Wall Street. There's so there's so many there's so much competition to get into these things and Lehman brothers and all these different things. Um, it's, there's so much competition for kids nowadays that they can fight. I mean, the kids are knocking themselves out doing, um, you know, these, these high level classes in high school, just to be able to get into a general college. It's so much pressure on them. So um, that's just kind of what made me think that, um, the doors I still
1: don't. Good, oh I I still, the basic principles are still there. You
0: you have okay. have to
1: use your imagination. You have to work mm-hmm. hard. And just what you said, you either got to. I'm going to argue with dive and flow. You got to go to flow. If you don't get into Harvard, you go to Tufts. You don't go to get into Tufts. You go to, you know, University of Tucson. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And you find your place. I mean, I, right. I I went up to MIT when I graduated high school. I was graduating 14th out of 400. I had nearly the 100 percent. Uh, record and get 100 percent in every one of my math regions. I was a math whiz. I went to went to MIT uh, to for for an interview and they had it was like kind of 100 kids in the in the room and they said all the kids who were first in class stand up and half the kids stood up. All the kids in the second class stand up. Everybody else stood up. I was the only guy sitting down. I said this isn't for me. <laughs> so, you know, you got to pick your spot. You know, at, at your point, you know, I wasn't ready for that. You know, I went to Harvard mm-hmm. as in graduate school because after I'd gone to the Navy and I'd worked, and I was ready for Harvard then. So, mm-hmm. and Harvard may not be the place for you. And again, right. it depends upon your passion. I, 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 you have to pick your passion. Your passion may be something that is sort of. You know, a friend of mine had, had a passion for, you know, back surgery. He's doing back surgery in Ethiopia. I mean, that's what he wants to oh do. No, no, this wow. guy is some, not, he's a very special human being. I met him, and I couldn't believe, but he's excited about what he does. He loves what he does, so you have to, you have to find it. And the passions, passions are a part of the context. You know, uh, I wouldn't go to Wall Street today. If I, was, if I was me, I would not go to Wall Street today. I'd find that there's so much technology today that one commander. I can make lists of things, nanoscience, uh, neuroscience. Of, uh, financial science, healthcare, health tech. I mean, uh, right. uh, AI, robotics. I mean, there's so many fields I could go into data which I would go into. I would not right. go to Wall Street.
0: Right. My daughter, is, my daughter is a data scientist, and that did not exist when she was in college. Um, exactly.
1: It. We have a data, data science building at the University of Rochester. It's been built you know, less, less than 10 years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, that's a new science. So yes, there is so much more. Um well, Ed, it's really been really been great to talk to you and um thank you for sharing your life with us. I know it is a vulnerable feeling to put it out there, but it's done in such a beautiful way and you have lots of pictures in here so we can really see what you're talking about. We can see who you are, we can see you as you age. <laughs> but-
1: I was <laughs> you know, um, kid about the picture there's a picture of me picking my wife up when we were first married I was a kid about the fact that I can't do that anymore it's because she's gained so much weight it hasn't gained a pound <laughs> oh
0: yeah 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 but you know you're a cute little boy and yeah. anyway uh, it's been really fun talking to you I thank you so much and your book On the Road Less Traveled an unlikely journal from the orphanage to the boardroom is, um, I would imagine, available on Amazon. And anything else that Amazon we need Simon to know? And,
1: and I have a Simon. website, www.edhajum.com. Uh, Hagem is a very unusual name, so I luckily got the whole thing. And, Randy, if you would, if you, if you read it, i appreciate it if you do a quick review and a rating for me. My publisher would love you.
0: Okay. On um, which one? On Simon & Schuster? On
1: Amazon. On Amazon.
0: On Amazon. Okay.
1: Okay. So little review point. Give me a little review, be. I'd appreciate that very much.
0: Well, I know how brother, that is. Me- I have books, and you I, do. I, I always appreciate that. Yes.
1: Yeah, you so. give me a lot to think about too, as well. Thank you.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. Um, yeah, I tend to dig into things, <laughs> but yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, uh, and and not to put you on the spot, but just to you know, just. Just I, My listeners, I want my listeners to be able to think about things in, in very different ways. And so that's why I do that. But it's been an absolute pleasure. And I wish you tremendous success
1: with your book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What a wonderful way to start the day. Thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are out of time today. But if you have any comments or questions, um, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, dot com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows.
1: Thank you for listening.